And good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. It's good to be here with you. I've been away quite a bit this summer speaking in other places. And then these last two weeks uh, have been hosting what we call here at Bethany Ancient Paths trips up at our house so that we've had uh, young adults and older people as well on trips into the woods with silence, solitude, fasting, learning about identity in Christ, and helping God redeem broken parts of the story and, and embodying, seeing to embody the faith more clearly. It's been really a joy to be with everyone. Um, one, of the, one of the themes in an ancient paths trip often, as I'm privileged to in, involve myself in them and teach, is found in John 15, 8. So I want to pray, and then we'll look at that verse and ask God to teach us this morning. Father, I, I pray this morning that as the calendar changes and we're in this moment right now, where summer has ended and now we're looking at fall and Christmas and 2024 and a new year. This is often a moment of reflection. Darkness uh, supersedes light. The days uh, are shorter than the nights right now. We have time to think, time to reflect. I pray that in this moment, Father, today your spirit would move among us in order that we might have ears to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to us as your people. Hearts to respond and we'll thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, here's Jesus in John 15, 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit and show yourselves to be my disciples. So this is the end of Jesus' life and he's articulating here what is the most important thing on his heart in a sense. And, and what he says is, if I, could, if I could wish one thing for you, just one thing, what would it be? And this is the one thing. My one thing is this, that you would bear fruit and show yourselves to be my disciples. It wasn't, this is my one desire that you go to heaven when you die. That's not God's goal for you. It's a byproduct, but not a goal. It wasn't, this, it wasn't, this is my one desire that you change the world. I mean, you'll, you'll have impact. That's not God's goal. This is my desire that you believe in my, my uh, divinity, my humanity, my virgin birth. That's not the goal. Like, intellectual affect doctrines about the person of Jesus. You can have all the doctrine, know your Bible, go to church, participate in all kinds of religious forms, and never reach God's desire for your heart because God's desire isn't that stuff. That stuff is intended to be a means to the end, but what's the end? Here's the end, that you bear much fruit. Oh, wow, interesting. What is that? Well, fruit, Jesus says in John 15... It's what happens when you abide in Christ. Okay, what does that mean? That language is actually erotic language, basically. Jesus is saying in John 15, look, I'm the, I'm the vine, you're the branch, but elsewhere he articulates, he articulates it the same way when he says, I'm the groom, you're the bride, right? We the church, men and women here, we're the bride of Christ. What's our responsibility as the bride? We are to receive the seed of divine life. So that we now, being filled with the life of Christ, will display uniquely through us that which is not Christ, but has, bears the mark of Christ. Does that make sense? In other words, let me say it this way, because this is so important. Fruit of union with Christ looks like Christ. Say it with me. Fruit of union with Christ looks like Christ. What does that mean? I'll give you an illustration. This is me, right? Here, coming up in a second. That's not me, that boat. This is me. And, you know, if you look at that picture, you kind of get an idea 
what I enjoy, what my hobbies are, what I'm into. Um, this is my son, okay? Other than repenting of snowboarding, he's just like me, <laughs> right? He's kind of changed his tune, and now he's a skier as well. But never did I sit him down and say, hey, you know, I'm going to build this into you, man. You're going to love the mountains, and you're going to be a rock climber, and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna ski all the time, and yet now he owns a coffee shop in Leavenworth so that he can spend his free time skiing and rock climbing and enjoying the mountains. And it just kind of, it didn't just rub off. He has my life in him. Are you, do you understand what I'm saying? And so you have Christ's life in you. <clears throat> then what? You will be this kind of unique expression of Jesus. Not Jesus, but everyone, everyone should look at you and go, wow, there's something here that has the mark of Christ, right? So to be a Christian means to bear fruit in two ways. Fruit of influence, our lives are generative. God is using us to change other people. And uh, uh, fruit of character change. So if you have the fruit of spirit, people see in you, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, eye contact. You, you actually listen to people. You're present in the moment. You're, you're, you're able to cross social divides. You're courageous. You know when to speak, when to be silent, when to confront, when to forgive. Uh, you, uh, you don't resort to violence. You're not, you're not name-calling. You're not petty. You're not ego-driven. That's fruit of spirit. And so when Jesus says, this is my desire, what he's saying is, I want you to be so full of my life that you are like generatively displaying my character. That will change other lives. That'll bless other lives. So that's the goal, right? Paul says it this way in Galatians, God who set me apart from my mother's womb called me by his grace and God was pleased to what? Pleased to reveal his son in me. God's desire, that Christ would be seen in you. Okay, this is simple, I know, to, to, to say, but not simple to do. So I'm going to ask the question here, well, what, what single habit will most contribute to more of Christ being revealed in my daily living? Like if I could change one thing about my life so that people could see Christ with greater clarity, what would that thing be? That's what we're looking at this morning. So, so our answer is found in the text that Lauren read so well, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, particularly verses 16 to 18, where we find three realities which if we embrace these will lead to kind of in our heart a confidence that we're on a journey for the rest of our lives of transformation. So that it doesn't matter here in the room if you're in your, you know, your 20s, your 30s, your 80s, doesn't matter. We're still on the journey of transformation. So that more and more and more and more, we look like Jesus. That's the goal. How do we get there? Well, here's three things. We all, with unveiled face, behold the glory. And we're going to look at those three realities. First one's very important. Maybe in this moment in history, the most important of the three, we all. This is what Paul says. Contrasting Moses and the law, Paul says, but we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory. I want to stop and look at we all because that's Texan. It's, in other words, it's second person plural. God is not saying, you know what the key to transformation is? You, Nathan, focus on the glory of God, 
right? You, Marilyn, focus on the glory of God. You, Lauren, focus on the glory of God. No, 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 no. He's saying, how does transformation happen? We all, together, are creating a culture of gazing at God's glory. There's an interdependency here that is hugely significant and important, and not only significant and important, but A, overlooked in Western culture, and B, um, kind of bypasses us because we collectively are guilty of the idol of individualism, right? So I want to talk about this, this thing. This is vital speaking to our cultural moment. There's a new book out seeking to answer the question regarding why people between the ages of 18 and 30 are no longer sitting in these pews. And some of you are. Thank you. That's good. And Lauren's working hard to minister to college students. Also good. But why are so many now saying, oh, no, I still love Jesus. I'm just not interested in this thing anymore. Like, why is that happening? Well, here's the thing. Uh, the most recent book, and I only read a review of it, like an overview, a flyover, but a couple of things that were said that were significant. Many people in that age group are saying this, the church doesn't provide a culture that encourages my transformation. It provides teaching, but not a culture. What's the difference? Teaching is, is uh, motivational, right? You know, read your Bible, boom. I can tell you why it's important. I can show you how to do it. I can, I can teach a class on it. I can tell you how it inspires me. I can tell you stories from it. But if, if my desired outcome is for you to read your Bible, then, you know, by the end of it, I go, read your Bible, and then it's up to you. You go home and read or you don't. And if you don't, you don't. And if you do, you do. But here's the thing, nobody in the room will ever know. Because what this becomes in our worst iterations, is a, like a spiritual store where individuals come to get an individual piece of truth to go home and apply in their individual lives. And some go home and apply it, and they're on a journey of transformation, nobody knows. And others go home and don't apply it, and are, are, are on a kind of a, a downward spiral into loneliness, anxiety, addiction, self-medication, and also nobody knows. So Paul isn't saying... Hey, here's some advice, take it or leave it. He's saying, you, Bethany, create a culture of gazing on Christ. Why? Because you're not transformed by motivational teaching that you can take or leave. You're transformed by being a tribe. (laughs) One uh, young, young adult 25 years old, said this, and I'm quoting directly. I'm looking for a tribe that will help shape my values. I don't find that in the church. Now, I'm going to stop here and talk about the word tribe because the word tribe, to be blunt, has been perjured in our culture. And people think, oh, you're tribal, as if it's a bad thing. Hello, everybody's tribal. What do I mean by that? MAGA is a tribe, but so is Greenpeace. Greenpeace is a tribe. Proud Boys are a tribe. So is CrossFit. You don't think CrossFit's a tribe? People come to CrossFit like, yeah, I had a couple pounds on me that I want to get rid of. And they start hanging out with crazy people who do box jumps and 
double jump roping and, you know, running all over the place and, you know, hanging from a bar and throwing medicine balls at each other. And pretty soon, they're box jumping and running and throwing. And no one, you know, sat with them and said, you know, try harder, do more, run more. No, they're in a community with a culture, and the culture shapes the community. Are you with me? They're part of the shaping but they're not only part of the shaping, they are being shaped by the tribe. That's why people stormed the Capitol on January 6th. I don't know what got into me, but we were all doing it. That's why people on Saturday nights sit at the local watering hole in my town and get wasted. People don't go there with the intent of getting wasted. They go there because they want to be part of a tribe. And everyone's getting wasted. So they get wasted. I was there last night not getting wasted because I was hosting some friends and there's literally one restaurant in our town and, you know, I walk in and here's my, here are my neighbors. And I didn't know that they always are there on Saturday night. They're a tribe. What's a tribe? A tribe is a, is a group of people that gather around an affinity and because they're gathered around an affinity, that affinity shapes their culture. And then that culture shapes their life and then they go out into the world representing that. That applies to MAGA, Greenpeace, CrossFit, local watering hole, every tribe. There's a book, Blue Zones, which is a study of the healthiest people on the planet. They're scattered all over the place. Okinawa in Japan, an island in Greece, Sardinia in Italy, um, Seventh-day Adventists down in Southern California. And there's nine characteristics that all these places where people are healthy share all nine of these things. Well, with the exception of one, Adventists don't drink. Everybody else has a little bit of wine, but that's not the point this morning. The, of the nine, three of them are about being in community. The longest living people in the world share these three things. Uh, there's a, they belong to a faith community where they're thinking about God and transcendence. And they gather regularly, like you're doing right now. Second, uh, they, have a, they, have a, they have a tribe. They have some friends with, by, through shared values, they make healthier choices together. They raise the bar. And they have uh, close family ties. Faith, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> faith, tribe, and family. And why is that? Well, the author, this is what he says, the world's longest lived people chose or were born into social circles that supported healthy behaviors. Why? Here's why. Dietary norms, exercise norms, norms regarding how to handle stress are best caught, not just taught. Studies show that smoking, obesity, exercise habits, stress reduction habits, meditation habits, happiness, and even loneliness are all contagious. We become like our community. Wow. So imagine then, if a church was a community committed to gazing on Christ. So you didn't just hear about it from the pulpit, but you knew. We all, we all of us have habits of looking for God's glory. And, and, you know, our delivery systems may be slightly different. Some have a meditation pillow. Some have small children. They can't have a meditation pillow, but they, but they spend time, you know, 
in the bathroom or in the shower and, and, and they sing about the Holy Spirit, inviting the Holy Spirit to change their mind or whatever it is, maybe different habits, but we're, we're collectively committed to gazing at God's glory because we believe audaciously, 2 Corinthians 3, that if I gaze at the glory of God, then the life of Christ in, in me will be seen with more and more and more and more clarity. Imagine that. If there's a community that is displaying nothing less then the life of Jesus, that changes Seattle. That's why the gospel's communitarian. See, the thing is, none of us display Christ's life perfectly. I have a gift, you have a gift. Everybody has gifts. But that gift is like one pixel on a giant frame. And if your pixel is missing, then the picture isn't, clear. Just look at this. Here's an example. This was two weeks ago. I think I know who those people are, <laughs> but it's not clear enough because there aren't enough pixels. Do you understand? Take some pixels out, the picture gets fuzzy. Listen, when you are not actively involved in the body of Christ, which is the church, using your gifts, when you're not active, the picture's fuzzier. When 10 of you are not active, the picture's really muddy. When half of you are not active, the, the, the picture becomes unrecognizable. And the church is often in America unrecognizable as the bride of Christ filled with divine life, pouring into the world justice and mercy and hope. Why? Because we're individuals coming together, but we're not a culture shaping each other. Gospel's communitarian. It's also communitarian because as I already shared with you, our values are intended by God to be more caught than taught. What do I mean? Well, I, you saw the picture of my son. We're a mountain family. My kids are all mountain kids. It's also interesting to me that two of my children uh, own eating establishments. My daughter owns a coffee shop uh, down by the Space Needle. Nielsen's Pastries, free advertising. <laughs> best, best, really good Danish stuff, yeah. My son owns Argonite Coffee and Biscuits, in Leavenworth, both, they both own coffee shops. And I, you know, this has been going on now for years, and I'm like this. I say to my wife, I cannot figure out how my kids are in food service. You could put a gun to my head and I wouldn't become a restaurant owner. I have no desire to do that. And, and, and I said to my wife, plus, we never went out to eat. How, like, where did they learn this? And then my wife, just Friday, she said, hey, how many people have we had at our dinner table every night this week? I said, 12. She said, how about the week before? I said, 10. How about the week before? I said, 6. What'd you do when those people from Oregon called and just want to stop in? I said, come over. She said, how dumb are you? I said, keep talking. <laughs> she said, our kids do what they do because they love hospitality. Because that's what we've done for 44 years as a married couple. I didn't ever say to my kids, hey, you want a good business idea? Open a restaurant. Never, never, never. So they caught something. They caught hospitality. Where? From a culture of hospitality. So when, when Paul says, we all, he's saying, look, we need a collective vision of transformation. Also, though, we all 
under that umbrella of collectivism, collectivism requires individual responsibility. Uh, in other words, each one of us have to fix our gaze on Christ. Um, proximity with people of faith does not create faith. Coming here into a community without making choices that are transformative in your own life means you're in the community, but you're not on the journey of transformation. Well, if you go back and look at the children of Israel in the wilderness, every person needed to cross the Red Sea. Every person needed to gather manna. Every person needed to follow the Spirit. Every person uh, needed to do their part. Uh, this collective yet individual concept is a bit like mountain climbing. If, if you've climbed Rainier in here, has someone, anyone? I know Nathan has. Anybody else? No? Okay. So when, if you're climbing, you know, you're not, off, you're not always going straight up. You're often traversing across a slope. And you're tied together on a rope team. And so you all have ice axes, which is like, functionally, those are like brakes in case somebody falls. And so you always carry your ice axe on the uphill side. This is the downhill side, uphill side. So I'm leading a rope team on a climb of Mount Baker years ago, and I look back, and there's a gal who's left-handed, and she's carrying her ice axe in her left hand. And I turn around and I say, no, remember, it's the uphill side. Oh, that's right. She puts it in. Then we go a little bit further, and at 50 feet, I turn around, it's in her left hand again. I said, no, no. Put it in the other, you know, it's always on the uphill side. Not left hand, not right hand, uphill hand. Oh, I'm sorry, puts it in 50 more feet. It's in the left hand again. I say, everybody stop. I go to her. I go, look at me, right? Are we seeing each other? If I see this one more time, the trip's over. We're going down without hitting the summit. She starts to cry. I said, you don't need to cry. I'm not mad, but this is really important you are the brakes if one of us falls. And you want to hit your brakes sooner uphill rather than later downhill. Got it? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. And then that was it. She went on. What motivated her was this. Other people are depending on me. Are you with me? Hey, can, can we apply this now to the life in the church? And I'm just going to say it to you right now and right here. Yes, you have needs. Yes, you're growing. Yes, you're broken. We'll get into that in just a second. And yes, this is also true. There are people around you in this very room who need what you have to give. Yeah, so don't check out. Because you have an ice axe. And you're on a rope team. Oh, yeah, yeah, but my life is hard. Listen, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 2? He says, oh, your life is hard. I'm so glad I met you because my life is hard too. Let me share with you how I am walking this journey of hardness. We desperately, overwhelmingly need one another because we are Christ to each other. Not just the Bible, our life together. Amen? I mean, it's just so important. We as a community said in a survey, we like the teaching, we like the choir, the systems work, but we're not connecting. That has to change. For us to follow the heart of God. So, individual responsibility, collective responsibility, we all. We all what? We all have unveiled faces. What does that mean? It means that uh, we all are acknowledging that we all are still, no matter how old we are, still on a journey of transformation. We're, in other words, we're all broken. 
God is still healing us, still redeeming us, still delivering us. It goes on and on and on. So he's saying we're letting go of pretense and self-righteousness. That's the veil. And Paul had declared earlier that wherever Moses is read, a veil remains. Now, to understand what that means, uh, you have to go back to Exodus 19. Because the veil, like when, when you say Moses is read, what's being read is the law of the Old Testament, right? So how does the law create a veil? Well, watch this. Exodus 19 is where God says to Israel, if you obey me, then I'll make you my treasured possession. Did you hear that? All you got to do is obey me. You're my treasured possession. He hasn't even told them what they need to do yet to obey. And they, with utter confidence, they say this. Oh yeah, all the Lord has spoken. We will do it. Never mind that, you know, so far in this journey, when you led us to the Red Sea, we doubted you and thought you brought us out here to kill us. And when we were thirsty, we accused you of bringing us into the wilderness so that we would die of thirst. And when we were hungry, we whined and doubted you'd provide food. And never mind that when you did provide food, you told us to gather not more than a single day's worth of food on any given day. And then we went out and gathered more and it spoiled in our tent and we blamed Moses. And never mind that uh, on Friday, you told us to gather twice as much food because Saturday would be a Sabbath and we'd wake up and we'd get to rest and not have to gather food and there would be no food if we went out to gather. But instead, some of us got up on Saturday and went out to gather food and there was no food. And again, we blamed Moses. Never mind that we, we whined about Moses' leadership, Moses' wife, uh, Moses' assistant. Never mind that our long list of failures and lusts and, compla- and complaining has happened again and again and again down to this very moment. Yep, we're going to obey you perfectly. You know what I call that? Like a glaring lack of emotional intelligence. Like they don't see their own flaws. Why? Watch this. The law does that to us in the Old Testament. And what, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. You, like, the Pharisees would read the law, and then they would say, you know what, we're killing it. We've, we're doing it right. We've got it. And you know what enabled them to do that was a reinterpretation of the law so that the Pharisees had this propensity for interpreting the law as a means of reinforcing who they already were. So, for example, uh, sometimes in our culture, we take sins that we don't commit and we say, you want to know what the worst sins in the world are? It's those sins. Yeah, look at those people unhoused. Look at all those bad choices. Those are the sins. We have a house. Look at those people uh, who are, you know, sexually broken, sexually confused, uh, wrestling with sexual identity. Not me, man. I'm heterosexual, married for 44 years to a woman. I'm on the moral high ground. I'm up. They're down. I'm in. They're out. I'm saved. They're lost. Good for me. God hates that. Because it's a veil that prevents our own brokenness. And our brokenness is our precursor to our own transformation. So if you're not interested in being transformed, I mean, you could leave now. None of this is for you. But if you're interested in being transformed, the presupposition of transformation is, I need transformation. Not just Nathan, me too. So how, you know, how does the veil get taken away? I'll tell you how you look at the Lord. You look to the Lord and you say to Christ, Christ, my deepest desire 
I'm, I'm as hungry for this as I've ever been for anything in the world. I want more of your glory to be displayed in my life. And I'm willing to do anything <clears throat> for that to happen. I mean, if that's your prayer, you're, it's like ripping off the veil. And then you know what happens? God begins to speak to you and show you the broken parts of your life and reveal pride and reveal ego. And these revelations happen all the time. They've, they've happened to me on I-5 in tra- traffic jams where God reveals my ego. And I go, who are all these people? What are they doing here? None of them are as important as me. I have places to be. Get on the freeway. That's my problem, not theirs, right? So it could be a traffic jam. It could be an argument with my spouse. And it could even be a dream. I had a dream two weeks ago last night. And I'm in uh, San Luis Obispo, California. I studied architecture there uh, in 1975, 1976, before moving to Seattle. And in this dream, and my aunt lived in that town. In this dream, I'm talking to an older couple and saying to them, I have to get to my aunt's house. And they're like this, we don't know who your aunt is. I said, no, no, I have to get to, I have to get to your house. What's your address? I don't know her address. I don't know any of the street names around here. I haven't been here forever. But I have to go to my aunt's house. Well, do you have any idea where it is? I know exactly, I can tell you how to get there from Cal Poly. Oh, how would, how would you get there from Cal Poly? Well, I live in Sierra Madre. I live in that dorm. You, you leave the dorm, and you get out there, and you get in the parking lot where your red Mustang is, and then you, you drive out, the, you know, the big arch as you leave the college, and if you stay on that road, that road uh, crosses Interstate 101, and, and then you're on the other side of the freeway, and on the other side of the freeway, you keep going, and you hit uh, a high school, and there's a baseball field there. That baseball field, <laughs> that's where I played with my dad. We played baseball when I was a kid. In that field, only that field. Because we were so busy at home. But there we played. And then you, you hit, then you turn left, and you go down, and it's the next to the last house. It's the base of a mountain. There's a creek in the backyard. I woke up. It was so real. Why am I thinking about that house? 50 years later. I hadn't thought about it at all for 50 years. I pull up Google Earth. I wonder if I got the directions right. (laughs) Left turn, high school. I see the high school. It's still there. I go down the road. I turn Google Earth so I can look. That's her house. That's my aunt's house. There's a backyard. That's where bad stuff happened. There's that room. That's why I hated that room. That's where pain is. In that room, pain that I had never seen, that I had never faced. So, you know, whatever. There it goes. Here comes a group. Got a lead. And then we lead this trip. And then, uh, man, we lead a trip. And normally we leaders on these ancient past trips, you know, everybody's fasting. And we say, no books for you and no food for you. Well, I've got lasagna and, you know, Tolkien and I'm out, <laughs> except not on this trip. What was that dream, man? And then I started journaling and crying, and praying, forgiving people in my life, confessing stuff. Transformation. And then, you know, at the end of my journal, I said, really, God, you wait till I'm 67 to show me this? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, A, you weren't ready. B, you're too busy to even listen. You want God to be redeeming your story? It happens. But you have to show up. And how do you do that? Well, the the word here is the last thing. Uh, With unveiled faces, we're beholding the glory of God. What does that mean, beholding? The word is theodzomai in the Greek language. We get the English word theater from it. So to understand, remember now, transformation comes from beholding the glory of the Lord. uh, And then that leads to this fruitfulness that is the goal. But how do I behold? Well, let's contrast for just a moment here uh, the mariners and the movies, okay? There's two different experiences. You go to the movies and, you know, there's some previews and then what happens? Uh, A little cartoon comes on or something and says, hey, make sure this thing is destroyed for two hours, right? Turn it off, take a hammer to it, whatever you want. But we do not want to hear that ding during a movie. Why? Because this is a theater, man. Theodzomai. We want to shut everything out and focus on this story so that you're right there with, you know, Darth Vader or Barbie or whoever you want to be with. I just focus. Then you go to a Mariner game. Two outs. Runners on second, third, bottom of the ninth. Down by one run. Count is two and two. And this guy says to his dad, hey, I want some popcorn. I'm leaving. I'm like, are you kidding me? And then they're taking selfies, and then this person over here is talking to this person on the phone. Like, we're all over the place. Why? Well, it's baseball. Whatever. There'll be another pitch. (laughs) It's the Mariners. (laughs) There'll be another year, right? Like, we check out. It's kind of. We're there, but not all there. Well, how are you transformed? Not like baseball. Like the movies. You know, every morning for me, coffee, phone off. And then, you know, if we see this fourfold thing, I don't know if we have it, this little meditation. Christ above me, I'm receiving gifts from God. Christ beneath me, I'm, I'm uh, above me. Christ beneath me, I'm rooted and grounded in love. Christ around me, I'm, I'm connected. Christ within me, I'm called. I'm, you know, we, we live with this. We, and some people are taking pictures, you guys, so just leave it up there for a second. We live with this as a morning, I live with it as a morning meditation. Shutting everything else out. There's no, there's, no, um, there's no phone, no internet. I'm reminding myself of what is most real in the universe. That I have the divine life of the resurrected Jesus living in me, designed to express life through me every day. Our desire, Bethany, is that that be a culture. That we're all, we all are beholding. Because if we all are beholding, then collectively we're being transformed. It's very important that, that uh, as, we, as we close here, we embrace this notion. We're being transformed from, from glory to glory to glory. And what I want you to see is this is being done to us. We don't transform ourselves, so we can kind of relax. My responsibility is to, is to be this wild-eyed kid receiving glory from above, from beneath, from around, from the text, from creation, from fellowship. I'm receiving, receiving, receiving. And then I'm quietly confident as I continually turn to Christ that he's transforming me. And I promise you this, friends, that leads to rest. And then you look more and more and more and more and more like Jesus.
It would be foolish today to invite and motivate you to a collective response and not give you an opportunity to respond collectively. And so, you know, it is a new season. It's fall of 23, and we th- I think of my year not as January to January, but like the Celtic Christians do, like fall to the end of summer, 23, 24. And we're starting, it's new. Students are back, it's new. So I want to invite you today to this one thing. If you would like to say yes to this ongoing transformation journey this year, 23, 24, I want you to just come up here and write in the book, yes to transformation. You can say more, you can write a prayer. But you're publicly saying yes is a way of telling this community, I'm in, are you in? And then it becomes crossfed. Oh, he's in? If he's in, I'm in. And then it becomes the bar. Oh, a <laughs> little more glory, please. I'll take seconds. And then we're transformed. So uh, don't hesitate. I know it's often awkward to come up here. But if God has spoken to you and you're interested in this journey of transformation, you're not alone. And the way that other people know that they're not alone is by you responding. So let's do that together as we pray. Father, would you meet us here? Our desire as a community is not to be religious, not to run programs, not to simply shout from a street corner, but to display nothing less than the union of your life inside of us collectively. And so we say yes today, Father. Bless us now as we respond. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.